Let's into the politics now. Stephen Mills and Ben Thomas, our commentators. Kia ora kōrua, welcome. Kia ora. Stephen is Executive Director at Talbot Mills Research Limited, former political advisor to two Labour governments. Ben Thomas is a PR consultant and a former National Government Press Secretary. Right, uh, I guess we're waiting to see what next. We'll hear what next at four. Many people expecting the lockdown to continue in the circumstances. Has this decision-making, um, this, this sort of Delta outbreak, really thrown the focus more sharply on what the post vaccination plans going to be. It's ironic the government had just outlined a plan the week before this hits. Is it going to really sharpen the focus on what happens once the vaccinations are up? Who would like to start? Well, I, I don't think that it's so much throws into relief what's happening going to happen after vaccinations, but it really shows that you know the previous plan that we had, which was limited irregular outbreaks which could be relatively well contained with you know astute and fast contact tracing just isn't going to cut it at all in a post-Delta world. Um, you know, obviously we saw those sort of sneering overseas headlines about locking down after one case and, you know, now what are we up to about 10,000 close contacts? So, um, yeah, I, 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 it certainly shows that whatever comes next, it's not going to be what we've gotten used to over the past year. Well, where they got to, I mean, it, it was going to be a, a really big call, whatever, wasn't it? And I think it's going to still be subject to significant uncertainty on how much control we have over Delta. And who knows, by the end of the year, when hopefully our vaccination rates as high as we're going to get it, um, is, um, you know, there might be even more kind of virulent variants, Epsilon or whatever will be with us. Um, that announcement the Prime Minister made... Um, uh, following the Skeggs report on reconnection, that seemed to be kind of, you know, reasonably well received by that what I'd loosely term the Swedish lobby. Um, you know, I've always been kind of keen on the borders being kind of more open and lockdowns being kind of weaker than they have been. Um, and it seemed to suggest that the principle would be that if they, they took it that um, if everybody had had a chance to be vaccinated, uh, then the borders would be open in 2022. But I still think that's a kind of huge call. And the government does have wiggle room because it didn't specify what the vaccination rate would be. And I think that's going to be still critical. I mean, like on the polling till then, um, prior to Delta, it looked like, you know, 70 to 80 percent was kind of a, a, a plausible target. Um, there's 10 to 20 percent who sort of flat out knows or rest of, and then there's probably another sort of 10 percent. There'll be kind of significant logistic challenges getting them to vaccination centres, even if they don't have any inherent opposition to it. And New South Wales said 70 percent. That's what they're aiming for, though nobody should take much notice of them in the circumstances. Um, but that's still a lot of people are unvaccinated and potential pressure on the health system. And I think it's really interesting philosophical questions. I mean, a lot of people kind of take the line, understandably, that say if people don't want to get vaccinated, well, good riddance, you know, let it be on their own heads. But, you know, does the government still have a responsibility to them? Does the government have a responsibility to people who have been misinformed by social media? You know, stroke people in groups like young women who are worried about whether they're going to have be able to have babies and so on and such, you know, complete rubbish like that. But it's no doubt they're real fears. And then there's the people who just can't get vaccinated. So are they going to be Look, on the other side, the one thing that is going in the government's favour at the moment is that the vaccinations have ramped up as they said they would. There are still a lot of questions over why we were so many months behind where others have been, and some of those arguments are starting to sound a little bit tired, to be honest. 
Um, but, however, mm. they're cracking on at, you know, 55,000 a day at the moment. That's cl- well clear of a million, maybe 1.2 million doses a month, maybe 1.4 million doses a month, Ben. So at the moment, the focus is on vaccination. It's happening. And is it feasible that once there is coverage um, at whatever level we get to when everyone's been offered, is it feasible to say, no, we're still going to level four lockdown with every case? No, no, no. And look, we saw prior to the emergence of Delta that the government was in a position where, you know, everything they were signalling was that they never wanted to go back into level four again and that they didn't think it would be necessary, you know, touch wood. Um, Where we are now is that, you know, we'll, you know, obviously, you know, pending today's announcement, but I I would assume that we'll have about another month-long lockdown in at least Auckland and Wellington. So we're getting into a sort of similar situation as that first lockdown last year, which was actually the one that caused the bump in unemployment, you know, all of the the economic problems, you know, this fully less than we expected um, from covid you know, last year, we, we can't really afford a couple of those, you know, every year. Um, so, so you know, vaccination is the only answer at this point. Um, vaccination and, and also this other area where the focus has come on, alluded to in the SCEG report, which is, has that health system, ICU beds, ventilators and critically nurses, been bolstered significantly at all in 18 months? Well, according to the um, my source of information was that excellent interview on Q and A in the weekend with Dr. Craig Carr, and he made it clear there had been planning and funding, subject to some media reports, that there were more beds, more ICU beds, more ventilators, and plans in place to convert wards into um, ICU um, compatible facilities. But that the big constraint, and you know, he made no kind of qualms about it at all. That it was a very, very difficult one to overcome was the number of staff. That it takes four to five years to train a ICU nurse, five to seven years to train an ICU doctor. You had to replace those who are leaving anyway. So while they'd got additional surge capacity, which he made it clear was not ideal, but certainly better than nothing. Um, you know that you know there's still kind of every chance the health system could be overwhelmed if Delta did get under out of control, which is why you come back to needing, um, you know, strong lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, the, the scale of our health system is such, you know, we're starting from the kind of base where, you know, even even pretty heroic improvements over the last year would still lead to us being overwhelmed pretty quickly if the virus got, uh, got loose right now, for example. Um, but... You know, look, in, in terms of, you know, in terms of that staffing issue, I mean, we've seen that, you know, the, the government and the immigration settings have not been particularly welcoming um, to the overseas workforce that we need to sort of supplement our own ranks. Um, you know, we've, we've seen GPs, you know, going home because their families can't get in. Um, you know, people stuck on the border, that kind of thing. So, look, you know, have, have all the best efforts been made, you know, to prepare for this lockdown? I mean, clearly not, but, you know, we are where we are. The challenging point will come, I think it was Sean Hendy, I apologise if I've read the wrong, uh, put the wrong name to the wrong article. We reach a point of vaccination where you um, are arguably back to where we were with the previous de- um, uh, version, the, ver- the previous virus in impact. In other words, you're managing to reduce the speed, 
and the scale of its impact through vaccination, that again might be the point where again some calculations and some decisions have got to be made about management. How has it impacted politics itself, Stephen, this latest outbreak? Well, we are kind of back to square one in some ways, aren't we, with the government absolutely dominating the media and, and you know, very difficult for the opposition to get a message across and to get the tone right. Um, there was a sticky big poll, and I should declare that I'm a owner of a tiny part of that um, uh, research company that um, it's 84% approved and 10% disapproved of the of going to level four. 79% were in favour and 12% opposed to the government's overall response and 29% in favour and 44% um, negative about National's response, although that were just about their best ever numbers on that question, so they are getting things um, right. Um, I think the public do get that Delta is dangerous, uh, extremely dangerous. Um, they see what's happened in New South Wales. They are in favour, as you know, polling sh- that quick polling showed, in favour of the lockdown. Traffic movements seem to be much the same as um, 2020, so that suggests some... Um, you know, reasonable compliance. I don't think people will be so fearful of an economic collapse as they were in the 2020 um, outbreak. Um, the National Party's not undermining the um, lockdown this time as far as I can make out. They're accepting it rather than kind of amplifying complaints and calling for exemptions. Um, but I, I just I think the, the mood longer term will be hard to read. Um, we poll a question, ask a question asking whether people think the worst of the outbreak of pandemics behind us or, or um, worst is yet to come. And the numbers have been moving you know, reasonably strongly to the, the worst is yet to come following New South Wales. But it hasn't really been reflected in behaviour such as scanning and um, you know, testing if you have cold and flu symptoms, which dropped to very low levels. And I think there is a sort of element of shock in this. We sort of think we've kind of gone through this. We've won the battle and now, hey, we're back in it again. And I think the media feel that too. And I I think are going to be a lot nigglier on the government this time round. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that that will you know, change the numbers much. Um, if there's anything that we've learned, it's that a lockdown seems to, to help the government. Um, you know, even looking worldwide, it seems that you really, really have to show extremely high levels of incompetence and quite a bit of callous disregard for it to even sort of, you know, have, have a minor negative impact um, if, you look, if you look at the UK and the US, um, which, you know, certainly wouldn't be warranted here. Um, you know, pe- people seem to like, you know, Ardern up on the lectern, you know, uh, <laughs> giving the impression that everything is under control. Um, so politically, you know, this doesn't, you know, I, I think National and National is doing the right thing which is just kind of sitting this one out for now. Um, It's interesting, though, in the wake of those recent polls, which saw Labour slipping back to early... 40s, a couple of them, I think. National, uh, sorry, national regaining a percentage point or two, certainly not slipping any lower than, you know, well clear of its election result, and act very healthy. Now, maybe some of that was because the attention had moved on to other things, but I do wonder, Stephen, about your polling in two months or four months' time on the responses. If there is getting to be a reasonably high coverage of vaccination, if Australia's getting to the point where it's being able to do things, starting to do things differently, if, 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 and when, and when people look to the Northern Hemisphere now and um, some of how things are being managed post-vaccination up there, we're talking about the worst yet to come uh, in the sense of the pandemic. It may also be the worst yet to come politically as well. The big shakedown still, you know, maybe two, four months off. 
Yeah, no, as I said before, there's a big, big issue coming up when, when we have kind of got through to the point where we're just picking up kind of the, you know, the odds and ends of people who haven't been vaccinated. At what point does a decision to be made? And that will depend, I guess, on that vaccination rate. I think still events um, overseas, you know, give a more kind of negative message than that. I think there's still kind of terrible news coming from many countries. And most of those that were held up by the critics of the government as examples of what we should have been doing in 2020 are in, you know, kind of real trouble as well. Um, so um, I think the polls will improve for the government, um, and um, and but won't that won't be the same sort of surge that there was in 2020. It won't go to hysterical numbers again. Um, but I think they will improve, um, and I think that still all evidence that I've seen is that um, you know people could kind of want the government to err on the side of caution rather than boldness. You know that I've you know constantly said I think the media's had this wrong with the endless circuit circuit of interviews of, you know, struggling businesses and not minimising their problems. But, you know, nobody talks to the people with, you know, kids with compromised kind of immune systems, you know, who do want the government to be as safe as possible in managing outbreaks. OK, the decision on whether Parliament should sit is an interesting one, Ben, isn't it? Uh, as I uh, have just been reading, it um, can, can be in the hands of the uh, cross-party committee. Uh, that uh, meets to discuss the operations of the House, or it can sit also um, under special powers in the hands of the Prime Minister. What are the politics of even making this decision? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to say Judith Collins you know, makes a reasonable point when she says if the project can get together and film and if breakfast TV can go to air, um, you know, why can't Parliament sit, um, you know, even with reduced numbers of social distancing? Um, you know, the, the, the other alternative, which has been mooted, is, you know, reconvening uh, that Pandemic Response Committee, which, you know, actually did extremely good work last year. Um, you know, probably the, 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 the late highlight of Simon Bridges' career as um, National Party leader. Um, of course, Parliament has to be reconvened to call that committee. Um, the, the government itself probably didn't appreciate the extra scrutiny of that committee, um, probably doesn't want to be bothered with, you know, questions to ministers um, each day. So I'd imagine that they will make a call, you know, quote-unquote based on safety, uh, that Parliament won't be sitting again this week. I think it's a no-brainer that Parliament shouldn't sit. It's a workplace of 1,500. It would set a really stupid example to the rest of the country. I don't see doc democracy in danger if Parliament doesn't sit for a couple of weeks. I agree. I actually put down exactly the same, same point, that it was the high point for Simon Bridges, that online select committee. Um, and I think something like that should be done. As Ben's pointed out, Parliament has to meet to kind of get that underway. But apparently you can repurpose an existing select committee. And I think that should happen. Um, and, um, and it should be chaired by a national MP. All right. Whether that's not, I don't know, but that's what I think should happen. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, let's talk about the legacy of Dr Michael Cullen, who died last week. Uh, of course, it was right back at the start of the first lockdown. I think he revealed his cancer. Um, he has been quite prolific in his output, uh, even quite recently, both in columns and writing a book and talking uh, publicly. And I think a lot of the um, obituaries and reflections that have happened since his death have been bang on in one thing. He has a legacy few can match. Ben, it almost in some ways uh, shows up how much this current government has struggled to get some things finished and over the line when you look at how much one person in government did. 
look, I mean, I've said before that, you know, we, we were probably, we probably got lulled into a bit of a false sense of security as a country with nine years of the Clark and Cullen government and then nine years of the Key and English government. And we sort of expected a level of competence that's maybe not realistic, um, you know, in the long term. I mean, when you talk about how prolific he was, I, you know, I worked for the Minister of Treaty Negotiations, who was also the Attorney General, and while I was there, the Minister for the Arts, and later, I think he was Minister for Intelligence Services, Chris Finlayson, you know, who had a prodigious work ethic, a huge brain. Michael Cullen did those jobs, minus arts, plus finance, um, and Leader of the House. You know, he, his capacity for work, along with Helen Clark, you know, is is actually pretty legendary, you know, if, if you think about it in those terms. Not just the legacy that he created, but the sheer amount of work that he could cope with and get through and make tangible progress on is actually really astounding when you think about it. Stephen? Yeah, no, I think he was a great man. I mean, a lot's been kind of written about his legacy, obviously, with, um, you know, the real achievements of KiwiSaver and, and the fund and Super Fund and... Um, and working for families, and also I'd add in kind of, you know, his kind of fiscal prudence, which I think was absolutely critical in enabling New Zealand to come through the global financial crisis um, largely intact, and even I think probably still has some influence on our ability to take action today, um, that he kind of held off pressures um, during a big boom period. And it was a huge and critical call, um, and absolutely brilliant one by Helen Clark, you know, to, um, to partner up with him after the 1996 coup, rather than sort of cut him up into little pieces like... Um, uh, Nick Smith and Todd Muller have been done, done over recently. Um, but I'd, I'd like to say just something about how kind and thoughtful he was um, and, you know, um, personal dealings. But also one of my jobs um, during the Longy Douglas Wars was to go around the left cabinet ministers, the Longy supporters, there weren't all that many of them, of course, um, to let them know our strategy and get their feedback. And, you know, a few of them didn't really like David very much or didn't kind of rate him. And, it, you know, was never a particularly sort of pleasant task to do. But he always asked about him and said, look after him. You know, he's really important, valuable, was concerned, and, you know, felt really uplifted. And that was the approach he took with everyone that I think brilliant intellect, great sense of humour, but a sort of wonderful human being as well. And, and just what, one other thing was, you know, despite, you know, incredible political career, obviously, you know, Kiwi Save, uh, Kiwi Bank, possibly against his, his, his own, uh, you know, <laughs> wishes, um, the super fund, yeah. working for families. But uh, after his retirement from politics and in, in those two tail end years of the um, Clark government, uh, he became Minister of Treaty Settlement, really did restart what was a completely moribund process under that government. Um and in his retire, you know, his retirement from politics, actually worked on the the, the settlements uh, and the post settlements for two two big iwi, two Faratoa and two Hoi, um, who he remained very very close with. And his memorial service is actually going to be in uh, Taniatua and conducted by by two Hoi. So. It was, great. it was great. He finished in style with a really good book. Politicians sometimes leave that book too late, but he he, he managed to, to write an excellent book, and I'd certainly recommend anyone to kind of read that who wants to know about New Zealand politics over kind of significant period. And his think pieces, too, were really kind of well-argued and interesting, though he was kind of at the top of his game as he, as he signed off. Uh, very interesting. The, the one thing we haven't mentioned was the foreshore and seabed. And interviewing him about the book, you got the sense that was the one regret the way that legislation initially unfolded, which led to such circumstances. I'm just trying to recall his explanation of it at the time, which was simply trying to get enough votes 
around the table for a different kind of legislation, something more like um, what is in place subsequently. But you do get the sense that that was um, the, the big regret. But again, the problem solver, right? <laughs> the problem on top of being, as you, you know, as you said, had been Attorney General and Leader of the House and Finance Minister and all these other roles, you get a curveball out, out of a court uh, and you're the one who's then sent off to try and design the solution. But I think that the other point I was making was these things were completed and these things have stayed the test of time, Ben. And it really does throw the spotlight again on the, on the current Labour government and its struggle to get things completed uh, that are set to last. I don't know, maybe it's got time. He was in Parliament many, many decades before we had the, the Clark government, right, Stephen? And some yes, he was. He came in in eighty one, I think, mm-hmm. um, and he never. Don't think he ever lost his seat. So you know, he had a long parliamentary career. I would say, I mean, I you know, I'm not in any way backing away from that. I think he was a brilliant, great man. But um, you know, solving the solving the housing crisis, I think, is a sort of probably a challenge that might have tested him um, as much as anyone. Anyway, fair comment. Thank you. Thank you both uh, very much for your time and your observations as always. Stephen Mills and Ben Thomas are our political commentators today.